You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. And so I, I want to just remind you of a, a couple of different things as we start out um, today. One is this, that if you sniffed a church growing up, you probably were exposed to, to the story of, of Jonah. But being exposed to a story and understanding a story are two drastically different things, right? Like, wouldn't we all agree with that? It's one thing to be exposed to it. It's another thing to understand it. And I love um, these words of Ray Steadman, pastor and author. He says this, Jonah is probably the best known and yet least understood book in the Bible. And so when you just ask the question, what is Jonah about? What is the book about? Like it's not primarily about a fish. It's not primarily even about the prophet Jonah. It's not primarily about a city, Nineveh, that God saves. It's primarily about God. Let let me read kind of what Jonah is about from one pastor. I, I love how he says it. He says it this way. It'll be on the screen for you. Jonah is a storied presentation of the gospel. It's a story of sin and of grace and of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that reveals that while you and I are great sinners, God is a great savior. It's a story of a God of great expenditure, relentlessly, or how he relentlessly pursues self-righteous fugitives. It's a story that shows that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches further. It's a story that shows that God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. This is the story of Jonah. It's the story of sin and grace. It's this contrast between this rebellious prophet on the run, Jonah, and these rebellious people of Nineveh. It's the story of those men and women on the run, rebellious, running from God, and this story of grace, of God pursuing them relentlessly. This is Jonah. Okay, so with that said... Um, last week, we tried just to paint some broad kind of background strokes behind the book. And this week, we're going to take the first six verses. As we kind of look at this idea of what it means to run from God, kind of this, this portrait of a defiant prophet on the run. Verse 1 goes like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... So let's stop there, two things. Number one, it says the word of the Lord. This is a familiar and a forceful Old Testament kind of a, a phraseology here. First of all, the familiar piece of it. It's used over 100 times in, in the Old Testament. And it goes to signify that, that God is speaking here, that he is actively... His word is leaving from his mouth and entering the heart of his prophets. Okay, now if you flip forward a couple of books, you're going to see it in Micah and Zephaniah. That's how those books start out just like Jonah. If you go back a few books, you're going to see Joel and Hosea start out in the exact same way. I love what Sinclair Ferguson, as he's kind of talking about this idea of the word of the Lord, what it means. And here's what he says about it. It, or this phrase means this. It indicates what it means to be a prophet. It meant you were the recipient of a communication from God. It meant to have a clear and fresh light shed upon oneself, upon a society, or upon a nation by the living God. It meant to be drawn into God's presence to see things from his perspective. This is what a word of the Lord means. It's this familiar Old Testament kind of wordage here. Okay, but it's also forceful. Think about what the book of Jonah starts out saying. It is saying this, that God speaks And what we are about to hear in the next verse is the word of God. It is the word of this active and authoritative sovereign king of the universe is about to speak to Jonah. 
That's, that's the God that is, is speaking. Okay, now notice who it says he's speaking to. These words, this word of the Lord is coming to Jonah. Now, I think it's interesting that there's no, I mean, there's really no description of Jonah, right? I mean, it's, here's Jonah, he's the son of this guy, and that's all we get. Uh, here's one commentator just kind of commenting on this fact, that there's very few biographical details here, very little in the way of logistics here. Just a man starts out the book, our primary earthly character. It says this about him. His file, Jonah's file in scripture is astonishingly, astonishingly meager. His name and the name of his father and nothing, nothing else. Where does he dwell? It's a mystery. Who are his friends, his teachers, his enemies? It's impossible to ascertain. What was he doing until the incident that made him famous? What became of him afterwards? No one tells us. Nineveh and its sinners, without Nineveh and its sinners, Jonah might not have figured into sacred history at all. I just think it's interesting that Jonah is by and large kind of a forgotten figure here. I mean, you see his name and then the story starts. But I think it's interesting just to jump back and introduce you to one other place in the Bible, really where he is first introduced. This one other place that we see this man Jonah pop up. If you flip back to 2 Kings 14, here's what you're going to see in 2 Kings 14. He's alive during the time of King Jeroboam II. So that puts him in the middle of the 750s, kind of that mid-700s BC. Okay, so this is his time frame. He lives in the northern kingdom, kind of underneath this king. And, and basically at this time, you've got the people of Israel. They are being pressed and pursued by enemies on every side. And this is where God comes to them in the midst of their despair and says this in 2 Kings 14. Look at verse 26. This is going to be the activity of God here. In the midst of their despair, enemies pressuring, pursuing, here's what God says. For the Lord saw that the affliction upon Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to, to help save Israel. Verse 27, but the Lord had not said that he would uh, blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. And then look at this, it says, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So, so here's what's happening. Jeroboam is a, he, he is known for being an evil king. I mean, this is not a good guy. And, and all of a sudden God comes in the midst of, of a people that need to be delivered and he comes and saves them by the hand of an evil king. So, so this is the picture of God's grace for you. Even in second Kings, you see a picture of the grace of God who comes to a, an evil people that are idolatry everywhere and he saves them by the hand of an evil king that's leading in the way of idolatry. Okay, now skip back one verse to verse 25. And this is where we're introduced to Jonah. God does this miraculous work, and verse 25 introduces it. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arba, according to the word of the Lord. So we got the word of the Lord introduced again there. The God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. How would you like to be from that town, right? But I want you to make this connection, that, that you've got a prophet who gets a word from the Lord that every prophet would want to have. If you picture yourself as a prophet, this is what you would want to be preaching, right? You get to go to your own people and you get to say this, despite your wickedness, God is about to rescue you. Despite your rebellion, God's going to use your rebellious king and he's going to push back your enemies and extend your borders. Despite you, God's about to act for you. And that all is ushered in by the words of Jonah. See, you would much rather preach that than what Hosea got to preach, right? Hosea, a contemporary, this is his message to the people of Israel. God comes to Hosea and says, you see Gomer, the prostitute? Go marry her. 
So Hosea buys her out of prostitution and marries her. Into their marriage, months, years, uh, some time, into their marriage, she runs back to her pimps and prostitutes herself again. Jonah comes back, or God comes back to Hosea and says, you go and buy her out again. He runs to her, buys her back out of her prostitution, brings her back in. And all of this is to form this picture so Hosea can now speak the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. That the people of Israel, do you see who you are in this? Do you see this played out before you? You are the prostitute. That's what you are. Now, how would you like that message, right? That one goes over real well, doesn't it? You see my wife, Gomer, that's you. You see me, I'm the picture of God. That's a rough message, but Jonah gets the message that every prophet wants to have. God is about to save you. He's about to redeem you. Okay, now this sets the stage for three shocking verses that follow. We're about to see three three things that would blow the mind of of a Hebrew reader the first time they read it. Okay, so three shocking things are now on the horizon. Verse 2, 3, and 4. First one's in verse 2. We get the shocking and surprising command of God. And here's what it says in verse 2. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. Here's what it says. The shocking command. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. It's a concise command. No extra words needed, right? It's a clear command. You don't need a commentary to explain what God is telling Jonah, right? It's get up and it's go to Nineveh and do and speak what I've called you to do and speak, right? I mean, it's a real clear and concise thing. So there's three kind of action words that form this. It's this idea of arise. God is saying in arise, not um, you need to wake up, Jonah. He's saying this is urgent, Like this command that I'm about to give you demands an immediate response. It demands that you act on it today, not tomorrow. Like what I'm speaking here is urgent. Okay, so he says, arise. And then he says, and here's the shocking piece, the context of this command. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Okay, so so let's just get a little bit of background of Nineveh here. Nineveh was a massive city, most estimated as being somewhere in the neighborhood of a half million people. And you're talking about a heavily fortified place. Um, Walls that were a hundred feet tall, chariots that could stack three wide on that wall. So you're talking about a heavily fortified, massive city. Now, this is what Nahum says about it. It's known for its cruelty. I mean, it's known for its brutality. This this is what Nahum says. He's going to prophesy a little bit later on. He, He says this. He calls it a bloody city full of lies and plunder with heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, so much so that you could not walk in the streets without stumbling over these bodies. Prostitution everywhere, witchcraft is rampant. I mean, these these are a pagan people, a cruel people, and God is looking at Jonah and saying, go there. See, this is where the distance in reading the text really does us a disservice. We're reading this 2,800 years after this story plays itself out. And see, when you read the word Nineveh, there's nothing in you that is stirred, right? I mean, you, you are emotionally neutral to Nineveh. But the people of Israel, Jonah specifically, was not neutral to Nineveh. He hated Nineveh. When when this command comes to Jonah, this word of the Lord comes to Jonah, I think if you just could use your imagination here, I think you could picture Jonah's face going pale. His demeanor instantly changing. 
These were cruel enemies. Like these were people that were known for like constantly and creatively inventing new ways to torture people. When they would capture a city, they would brutal, I mean, I'm talking brutalize women and children. And then they would oftentimes bury the men up and up to their heads and leave them to die. I mean, these are the people of Nineveh, these people of Assyria. And okay, not only are they cruel though, like think about it in these terms. This is Israel's primary and greatest threat to national security. I mean, these are the people that if you're Israel, you're thinking these are the people that may wipe us off the face of the planet. It's very likely by this time that raiding parties of the Assyrians have already come in and kidnapped and killed daughters and sons, husbands and wives. Like that is already at play here. Okay, now not only is all that going on, but you have got Assyria continually used in the Bible to represent this anti-God power. So they represent everything it means to live independent from God, autonomous from God. They are the picture of what it means to be a self-reliant, proud, arrogant people. This is what one commentator kind of says about that. He says, in the minds of the listening circle, the minds of the people that would originally read this book, these Hebrew people, in their minds, Nineveh stood for the essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. That's Nineveh. And in the midst of that, God comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, that great enemy. Those people who you despise, those people who you hate, those people who have set themselves up in defiance of me, and he tells them to go and preach, go call out against it. That's a technical word just to say, or technical phrase just to say, you go and speak what I've commanded you to speak to them. Now, when I kind of get that background, that gives me a little bit of of grace for Jonah, right? I mean, we have a hard time going across the street and preaching to our neighbors, right? Speaking the gospel to our neighbors. So you can see why Jonah might have a hard time going to, to Nineveh. This was an unpopular word to his people, and this was an unpopular, probably going to be a really unpopular word to the people of Nineveh. So you've got this shocking command of God. You go, you call out, you preach against this great city, Nineveh. Okay, now verse 3 brings the shocking, kind of the first real shocking twist to the story. Now imagine if you were reading from Genesis, and you just start reading the Bible for the first time ever. And you're reading about Elijah and Elisha and their obedience to God by and large. And you're starting to read about all these prophets of God, how God has used his people. When you get to Jonah chapter 1 and you read, okay, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai. God gives him this word to go and preach to Nineveh. You're expecting when you get to verse 3 to hear this. And Jonah got up the next day, he found a camel, and he went to Nineveh and preached. He obeyed. That's what you're expecting. But here comes the shocking twist in verse 3. You get the shocking response of Jonah. This rebellious running of Jonah. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. All of a sudden, you have got this prophet of God that has now joined the ranks of the rebels. This prophet has now become a fugitive, much like the city of Nineveh he was called to go and preach to, who is fleeing the face of God. You have got a prophet who has dug his heels in and looked at God and said, I have heard clearly and concisely what you have just told me, but I am not doing it. 
I am not complying. I am not submitting to your commands. I will not go. This is the picture you get of this defiant running from God. Okay, now I want to sit here and camp for just a few minutes this morning and try to give the profile, like some, some statements that kind of get at the heart of what it means to run from God. And, and so I'm going to make four of them. Here, here's the first one for us. Running has multiple dimensions to it. When you think about running, it's always multi-layered. Okay, now, now listen to me. It is essential that you see this. Essential for your life that you see this. That, that running, there is an outward work of running. And this is what you see in chapter 1. You see Jonah, a man on the run. God calls him to go to Nineveh, and he goes to Joppa. He on his way to Tarshish. You see this, this tangible picture, this visible portrait of what it means to run from God. And remember in this story, this is a story presentation of the gospel. Sin equals, in the book of Jonah, running from God. That, that's the description of sin. This is what it means in Jonah to run from, or to sin, to run from God. It is a man that has said, God, I know you have called me to go that way, but I'm going this way. And the geography really tells the story for us. Okay, if you think about, if you were a man 2,800 years ago listening to this story, you would immediately have picked up on the geography where God is telling Jonah, and I think I've got a map up here to help you with this. God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. That's 500 miles to the east. And instead, Jonah goes in the exact opposite direction. Like Jonah is the, kind of the guy in the center there. Rather than going to the east, he goes down to Joppa and he boards a ship to Tarshish. Okay, so you get the picture here that running equals the tangible behavior, the work, the outward work of running equals God saying this and me doing that. God saying jump and me sitting down. God saying wait and me going. That the picture of running tangibly on the surface is God commanding one thing and me doing the exact opposite. Okay, now I think this needs to be said as you think about this story. I think this is just really interesting in verse 3. There is always a ship that will allow you to run from God. There will always be one available. If you have your mind made up to run, when you get to Joppa, you will always find a ship ready to take you to the destination you want to run to. It always works that way. So men, here's what that means. If you want an affair, there will be a girl. If you want, if your hands are greedy for money, there will be opportunities for you to steal. The, the ways of running will always be available in the midst of it. It's just lo and behold, there's always enough money and there just always happens to be a means, a ship to take you where you want to go. And I think there's just like a word of caution in here, even as we make decisions, right? That I think the typical way that most people make decisions is there's a ship there, so why wouldn't I go? Surely that's God. Sometimes it's not God providing the ship. Sometimes that is your rebellion leading you to a ship. So I think we just need to be careful of always basing our decisions in life off of our opportunities in life. Like sometimes that is the way of rebellion to jump on those ships. Okay, so this is the tangible work of running, this outward work of running where Jonah goes 50 miles down to Joppa, 50 miles, boards a ship and goes to the far corner of the western like part of the known world. This is the picture of a man on the run from God. 
God says this way, I go that way. Okay, now, now this, is, this is what's essential for you to see. Everybody knows that piece of it. But the work of running also has an internal component. There, there's an internal work of running. And here's the internal work. The behavior, Jonah going down to Joppa, is not the primary issue going on here. So chapter 4, exegetes, it describes, it explains what is happening in chapter 1. Your behavior is never the issue. Your heart is always the issue. This is why in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus is going to say this. That from the heart flow all these things, all these behaviors like theft, like adultery, like murder, like strife, like slander. Like all of these things, they flow from the heart. So, so the issue is not your behavior. Your behavior, what you are doing, you tangibly getting on a ship and fleeing from the presence of God, that is the tangible work, uh, that's the symptom, right? This behavior is the symptom of the problem, where the primary problem, when you kind of excavate the issue, is your heart. That your heart has set it up, like Jonah, has set up in defiance to God. It's like, this is the root of the problem. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. The root of the problem is here in chapter 4. Verse 2 says this. And he, Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was uh, yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's telling you, this is why I ran. This is why I walked 50 miles to Joppa and boarded a ship to Tarshish. This is the reason. For I knew that you are gracious. You're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, the reason Jonah ran is because he did not like the ways and the wishes of God. He did not like the plans and the purposes of God. That's why he ran. The the issue was internal for Jonah. The issue is Jonah wanted God to do something that God didn't want to do. And when God wouldn't do it, Jonah ran from him. Jonah fled from him. Can you see yourself here? The reason you run from God is because like Jonah, you have dug your heels into God and you have said this in your heart. God, I know that that's what you want. I know that this is what you have commanded, but I do not care. I will not submit to it. The heart of, the heart of rebellion, the heart of running is, is this rebellious heart that is usurps and tries to overthrow the right rule of, of God in your life. This is the inward work of running. It is this heart that looks at God and says, I do not trust your rule. I do not like your rule. And instead of submitting to your rule, I'm going to step in your place and be God for you. See, that when, when you run from God, it is not you acting as if there is no God in the universe. When you run from God, when Jonah ran from God, and when I run from God, it is us trying to actively take the place of God in the universe. Are we tracking with that? Do we see what's happening there? This is how John Stott describes sin. And this is perfectly applicable to this. He says this when he's describing sin. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. See, this is the heart of sin. The reason you run is because you want to be God. You don't trust God to be God. You think you could do a better job at being God. That's the reason we run. We're substituting ourselves for God. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. This is the heart of sin. 
See, when you, when you look at verse three, Jonah fled from God. He ran to Joppa, boarded a ship to talk. When you read that verse, it's important that you see the complete picture. The complete picture is not just of a man running. The picture is of a heart that is committing treason against God, that has set itself up in defiance against God. That's the heart. It's the heart of a two-year-old that's probing and testing the boundaries of their parents, right? This is, yeah, this is the heart of Jonah. Okay, now look at me here. This is your heart when you sin. The heart that is running from God is the heart that is committing treason against God, usurping the right rule and reign of God in your life. I mean, are you tracking with this? Let me maybe say it this way. Do you see the depths of how sinful you are? That it's not just your behavior, it's your heart. And every time, and this is why sin is so offensive to God, by the way. That, that what, what is so offensive to God in, in 1-3, Jonah 1-3, is not Jonah in Tarshish or Jonah in Joppa. What's offensive to God is his heart of defiance. His heart that is looking at God and saying, you don't know what you're doing in the universe. I do. So maybe you need to take a back, kind of a back seat to my plans and my wishes and my whims. See, this is, this is the heart of Jonah and this is your heart every time you sin. This is what it means to run from God. That sin has so found its way and soaked its way into the cracks and crevices of your heart that you look at God with a distrustful eye. This is running from God. This is the multidimensional running from God. That the issue in prideful words is not prideful words, it's your prideful heart. The issue in a lustful look is not the lustful look, it's your lustful heart. The issue in greedy hands is not your greedy hands, it's your greedy heart. That's the issue. Okay, so, so this running from God is multidimensional. Here's the next thing. Running from God has a progression to it. It, it, it's this slow, subtle drift. It has a progression. Do y'all have some of those stories in your life that you'll just never forget? They just kind of form this unforgettable memory for you. Here's one for me, okay? I, here's the setting. I'm a freshman in high school, and our wrestling team is going on a tournament. So our tournaments are Friday, Saturday. So we leave that Friday morning. We're on our way to a wrestling tournament. And here's what happens on a Friday night of a wrestling tournament. We get a hotel. Our, our coach kind of pairs us into groups of four high school freshman boys, right? And gives us a hotel key. Does that sound like a good idea to anybody, right? That is never a good idea. And basically, it comes with this one warning. Everybody better be alive in the morning, right? I mean, that's that's the one warning that we get. And so we, we get back on a Friday night. We, we had a long day. I'm ready to take a shower, kind of turn in, do that whole thing. So I jump in the shower, right? I'm doing my thing. I'm just about to get out when I hear the most terrifying sound you can ever hear in the shower with four guys in the room with you. The creak of the door handle. That's never a good thing, right? Never a good thing. So I'm expecting what would be somewhat normal for us, like cold water coming over the top, like a strand of black cast going on, I mean, whatever, right? I look up over the shower curtain, 
and a cat is flying over the curtain into the shower. And if you know me, I've got like this, I mean, I, we're almost mortal enemies, me and cats, right? So this is not a good, this is not a good moment for me at all. And I, I'll never forget looking at this cat and it's almost like we made eye contact as he's flying down over the curtain, right? And he was way more terrified than I was, right? I mean, this, this cat was insane. Now, now here's what's so funny about the whole story to me later on that night. I'm like, man, how did you catch a cat? Where does that come from? And, and here's the story that they tell me. <clears throat> this cat is locked down underneath a car out in the parking lot. They can't get the thing out of there. Like they saw the cat had this beautiful idea, but they can't get the cat out. And, and so here's what they do. Somebody has the brilliant idea of we're going to take a little food and we're going to throw that little food out in front of that cat. And as soon as they throw that food, a step out in front of that cat, he takes one step, grabs that piece of bread, food, whatever, and takes a step back in. We're good. They throw another piece out. He takes two steps, grabs it. He's back in under the protection of the car. And another piece of it, three steps out. Right? I mean, he's almost to the danger point here, right? And he's back in. He gets his food. He's ready to go. The, The next one, four steps, five steps out. And finally, lurking in the shadows, Casey Moss, right? He will pay for this one day. Lurking in the shadows, five steps out, bam, he grabs the cat and he is at the point of no return now, right? And this is the subtle working of sin in your life. Sin sucks us in one step at a time. Now I want you to hear this. It is one step at a time. It is this progression. Like I like how one pastor says it. He says, it, sin works not, not like in this tidal wave kind of a, of a mentality, but it works like the tides. It's this slow and subtle seeping in. Almost like underneath, like your ability to even see that it's happening. Like this is the slow progression of sin. Now I want you to look at me right in the face when we talk about this. There are some of us in here today that the slow, subtle seeping in of sin has so hardened your heart and you're not even aware of it. That pride and a self-righteousness like Jonah has so bloomed and blossomed in your life and you're blind to it. That, That you have grown hard to the commands of God and you can't even see it. Like some of us are here today that we are on the run from God's sin is just subtly and slowly sucking us in and we don't even know it's happening. This is why in in Hebrews the Bible says that sin is deceitful. It just got this subtle way of working that's so hard to see sometimes. Let me just put this in the context of your marriage. Marriages never just implode. They never do that. You don't just wake up one day and have a terrible marriage. That's not how it works. It is slow, subtle steps, a thousand of them that lead to a bad marriage. A a million slow, I mean, they're just small steps that get you there. That's where bad marriages, that's how they implode. It's when we come into places like this and the Spirit of God speaks to us and we stiff arm that as if it's not a big deal. Like when sin arises in us, we just kind of suppress that. Like it's not really that big of a deal. Like we can deal with that tomorrow. Like when when the Holy Spirit starts to to really press and poke on an issue of our life. 
And we just kind of stiff on, we just kind of go around it. See, this is the subtle work, the slow progression that sin takes in our life. I like how one pastor describes sin. He describes it as a narcotic. It subtly addicts us and then it destroys us. This is how sin works for you. It is the slow progression. So can, can I just ask you the question? Will you be honest with yourself today? I can, if God starts to poke and press on an issue in you, it would be in your best interest to start repenting of that immediately, right? Before you find yourself so hard to God that like, the point of no return has happened there. So, so sin has this subtle progression to it. Here's the next thought. Sin, or this running from God, always carries results. It always has results to it. I just watch kind of this play out personally for Jonah. And you kind of see this even in a wordplay right off the get-go. That Jonah, it says he goes down to Joppa. And I think it's in like verse 5 or 6. He goes down into the inner parts of the ship. That, that is a metaphor of what sin does to a person. That, that rather than, than coming through on all the promises that sin kind of put, presents and puts before you, rather than coming through on any of those promises, it leads to this subtle sleeping. Like rather than leading to this vivacious and, and big life, it crushes life. It numbs us and puts us to sleep. Right? So just watch how this plays out in, in Jonah. He starts running and he finds himself in Joppa. He finds himself on a ship headed to Tarshish. Then he finds himself being thrown overboard into the ocean. Then he finds himself in the belly of a well. I, this is the storied presentation of Romans 6.26. That the wages of sin is death. That when you flirt long enough with sin, that it will one day catch you and kill you. This is the picture. That sin always has consequences. You never sin pain free. Like You never sin and, and the consequences not present themselves. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will always do that for you. So this is the personal consequences of sin, but, but maybe even broaden the scope out and look at what sin does on a corporate level to people around Jonah. That when you start looking at, at Jonah running from God, the sailors are innocent people as it relates to this. That storm isn't meant for the sailors, it's meant for Jonah. Right? You've got sailors who are about to be killed because of Jonah's sin. And that's not to mention probably all the other boats that are in the area that are all in the midst of this storm. Right? You get the consequences of sin played out horizontally across everybody that comes into contact with Jonah. Okay, now men in the room. I want you to specifically look at me here. Men in the room. Your sin always carries horizontal consequences. It is not no harm, no foul. It is not you sinning in a, in a vacuum. You're not an isolated individual. You are always connected to people, right? Your sin drastically affects your family. Your running from God plays itself out in a million harmful ways in the midst of your family. Ladies, your running from God has a billion consequences for everyone around you. Teenagers in the room. There is no way to upset a house quicker than for a rebellious teenager to start doing their thing. 
It affects everyone and everything around you. This is sin. Think of it in the context of a church. We are a body connected. So here's what that means. When you as a part of the body is running from God, running from the wishes and the commands and the directives of God, when you're doing that, here's what is happening to the church. The church, the body is not being who the church, the body is supposed to be. Your sin plays itself out horizontally in a thousand different ways. Your sin. There's results of that stuff. And lastly, you see this picture of running is a universal reality. Now I want you to think about this. That that running is a universal reality. That everybody runs. You run. I run. Everyone runs. See, this is how the book of Jonah is supposed to be presented to us. It's supposed to be presented this portrait of a man and how God deals with this man. But even bigger than that, it's supposed to be a portrait of you. See, Jonah functions as this mirror that is set before you for you to see this man Jonah, but also see your own sinful tendencies, your own rebellious heart. This is what the book of Jonah is intended to do for you. Like there's this old Hebrew tradition where on the Day of Atonement, the people of, of Israel would gather together and they would read the book of Jonah. And at the end of that book, they would in one accord, one voice, scream and say back as one community, they would say, we are Jonah. And do you see yourself there? This universal reality of everybody runs? Of that you are Jonah? There is rebellious remnants in your heart that resemble Jonah? I mean, do you see that in you? Do you see that picture? I mean, has God not been just as clear to us as he was with Jonah? See, like it always cracks me up that people will say stuff like this. If God would just speak to me like in this tangible, audible voice, like if the word would come to me like it came to Jonah, then I would obey, right? It probably depends on what that voice says, right? I mean, that's the issue. So it's not a matter of God speaking directly to you or speaking to his word. He has been clear enough for any of us to know what we are to do and what we're not to do, right? I mean, God has been clear in that. I mean, we could just go down the list here. Husbands, he's called you to love your wife as you love, or as he loves the church. This is the command of God to give your life as God has given his life. That's the command of God for your marriage. To To hesitate is to defy that command. To hesitate is to be Jonah. Ladies, he has called you to joyfully follow the authority of that man that God's placed over you. To to hesitate there is to defy the command of God. It's to run like Jonah. Are, Are we seeing this? God has spoken very clearly how we're to deal with money. How we're to walk humbly before people. He's been very clear in how he's commanded us to forgive. forgive. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. That is the clear command of God to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to love God above everything else. No competing masters in your life. See, I mean, the commands of God are clear. And can you see that little piece of Jonah in you? that has set up defiance to God, has dug your heels in and said, I will not submit to God. I will not follow God. I know this is what God says, but I do not care. I mean, do you see that in you? This is a universal reality that right now there is remnants in you that is running from God. 
And either you have a heart that is sensitive enough to God to see that, or that is calloused enough where you cannot see it. But this is a universal reality for everyone in the room right now, when you came in this morning. Last picture, verse 4. Last surprise. Verse 4, I I think, starts with the most shocking, just kind of portrait in, in the book of Jonah. There's only one thing more stunning and more shocking than the sinful rebellion of Jonah, and that's the pursuing grace of God, right? This is the shocking picture that verse 4 is about to show us, a God who relentlessly pursues his people. Look at verse 4. First three words, but the Lord. Circle those, maybe those three words, but the Lord. That that is introducing the fact that God is about to act, that God is about to do something, that yes, Jonah has run. That's the picture of sin. But here comes the picture of grace that God is about to run after, but the Lord. But God is about to act. But the Lord is about to do something. Jonah has run to Joppa, but the Lord. Jonah has paid his fare and boarded the boat, but the Lord. Jonah is on his way from Tarshish as far as he could get from the command of God, but the Lord. This is the relentless grace of God hunting Jonah down. This is the relentless and pursuing grace of God. The Puritans used to call God the hound of heaven. This is that the relentless pursuit of God, even in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of Jonah's defiance, even in the midst of Jonah looking at God and saying, I don't care what you say. God says, I still care enough about you to run after you. This is the stunning picture of grace that you see in Jonah. This stunning picture of God on a pursuit of his people. And as I read this 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 week, I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll close it there. As I read this, this, basically the first four verses of Jonah this week, it reminded me of of the first four verses in Ephesians chapter 2. How this grace of God comes to Jonah. Jonah runs, the grace of God pursues. But the Lord... But for the grace, the, the relentless grace of God. Look, look at Ephesians chapter 2. I can, and this is just the beauty of Jonah. The story of sin in Jonah is ours. We own that. The story of running from God, that is our story. But here is the beauty of the book. The story of sin is not our only story. We have the story of grace as well. The story of God pursuing us, relentlessly running after us. That that is our story as well. And look at the, look at Ephesians, these first four verses in chapter two. It says this. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, like Jonah, you were unresponsive to the whims and wishes of God. Unresponsive. You're dead to him. Like Jonah, you are on the run from God. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. See, like Jonah, we rejected the word of the Lord, and we've run to the word of the world. See, this is the picture in Ephesians chapter 2. 
So we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once um, walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. Our life is characterized by our wants and our wishes. We're living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, we are Jonah. That picture of sin is us, but we also get the picture of grace. We always, we also have the story of grace that applies to our life. Look at verse four. Jonah one, verse four, but the Lord. Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God. In our rebellion, in our unresponsiveness, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, Even when we were Jonah, he made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That even when we were dead, even when we were on the run, God chases after us, runs us down, and saves us. Makes us alive. Gives us new desires, new appetites. This is the story of grace. And here's the beauty. And this is what we'll kind of tear into next week. This is your story as well. Let's pray. Let me ask you the question this morning. Where is your heart like Jonah? Where where are you stiff-arming God? Where is it in your life right now where, where God is pressing and you are refusing to obey? Where is it right now that the word of the Lord has come And you just in an act of hard-hearted defiance have looked at God and said, I will not submit. I know what you say, but I do not care. I mean, where are those areas in your own heart right now? To, To our wives in here, has that sort of a heart crept into your marriage where you have grown hard to the voice of God? Where rather than your heart being the enemy of your marriage, your husband has become the enemy? For our men in the room, for our husbands, has that crept into to your marriage? I mean, do you, do you have this view of your wife that, that she is the problem? Now, I, I want to be grace, like grace-filled in, in saying this, but she's not the problem. Your, your heart is the ultimate problem. I mean, where is it that you have dug your heels in and said, I will not submit to you? But maybe it's in the way you're dealing with your money. Maybe you just got this heart that is greedy. You can just never have enough. I mean, I, I want to press on this strain for everyone in the room. God has been absolutely clear in that he has called us like Jonah to Nineveh. He has called us to our neighborhood. Have you dug your heels in there and said, God, I will not go. I will not do that. I will not invite people into my life. I'm going to kind of stay in my little holy huddle. And I, I'm going to kind of do this inward thing. I've got my friends. I am fine. I mean, is that your heart toward people? 
And even though you might not speak it, like I'd encourage you to like take a, like take a drive through your heart and look there. And maybe like Jonah, we, we've got this pride that has just blossomed and grown in us and we're just blinded to it. I mean, maybe this is like this issue where God is clearly saying that as the body of Christ, you're to be connected to the body. But, but you're not connected to the body. You're still living out on the peripheral edge of the body. Now, are you digging your heels in there? Or are you, are you living your life in the middle of community? I mean, where do you see Jonah in you? And, and this is the, really the story of grace this morning, that God, by you being here this morning, is hunting you down for repentance. So, so like Jonah, you can come to the end of yourself and repent. That, that's the grace of God, that in your rebellion and in your hard-heartedness, He has come after. He has wooed you in. He has brought you close. He, he has got you. I mean, this morning, that's the picture that this story of grace is your story. So he's giving you this beautiful opportunity like the people of Nineveh to get on your knees and to repent of those things. To not allow those calluses to grow, but, but for you to have a morning where you can start to cut those calluses off. And so really, I, I just want to invite you to go there this morning. Maybe there's competing masters in your life. What a beautiful opportunity today to be able to confess those to God. To to be able to say, God, thank you for grace. Thank you for for shaking me this morning. Thank you for awakening me to these things. Thank you for exposing these things in me. What a beautiful morning to be able to confess and repent of those things. To make this steady resolve of saying, God, by your grace, will you help me turn from and run from those things and to you? God, will you help me do that? And that's repenting. And so we'll sing this morning. I'm David to lead us in a song. And, and you feel free. I'm not even going to have you stand this morning. You can if you want. But I, I want to allow you just a moment or two here. And you feel free. If you want to come up even and pray this morning, I'm up front. You can do that. Um, if you want to, to pray over your family this morning, I, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to God appropriately. H- however he's leading that for you. Whatever that means, that might mean you need to go to somebody else in this room this morning and confess these things to them and repent before them. So I'll just kind of leave that up to you and and what the appropriate response would be to God this morning. So God, we, we thank you for Jonah and we thank you for how you use a man like Jonah to show us our own heart. And God, I pray that this morning your grace would, would enable us to confess and to repent and to run from these sinful remnants, these pockets of resistance in us. 
God, I pray for the grace that, that, would, that would allow that in this room today. And so, God, as we respond to you by singing and by praying and by repenting, God, I pray that you would cover this room. God, that you would work in our hearts. And it is in your good and gracious name that we ask those things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.